1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
2: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott on this Veterans Day, we say thank you for your service to all of our nation's veterans. We'll have a conversation related to Veterans Day in just a moment. And on this day, Georgia still counting votes more than a week removed from Election Tuesday. But today, Secretary of State Raffensberger dropped some major news. He's ordering a hand recount, although the tally is not complete.
4: We have a team of people, uh, national uh, uh, experts that have worked on risk-limiting audits in several other states. They're part of our team. This is not just a decision we made unilaterally. We reached out to these experts. We've been working with them for several months. And we just follow uh, the science of a risk-limiting audit. We follow the numbers, and that's where it leads us to count every single ballot by hand.
2: We'll have more on that in just a moment. And also Closer Look is taking your calls. We're opening up the phone lines. We don't do that a lot here, but we feel there's a lot to talk about. So give us a call 404-870-0135. And we're asking a question. How do you feel about our nation's, the current state of our nation's democracy? That's coming up later in the show. But first, as always, our daily update on On the pandemic here in Georgia, as of this broadcast, here are the the totals. The total number of confirmed cases is 376,054. The number of hospitalizations, 32,631. And of those, 6,138 were ICU admissions. And since the state began recording deaths, right now we're at 8,264 deaths since March. That, of course, is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, as mentioned, that big news continues. Georgia's still counting votes. Earlier today, George, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger held a press conference where he had several announcements. And joining me now, as he's been doing the last few days, WAB reporter Emil Moffitt was there. Emil, might as well make you an honorary member of the Closer Look team.
5: <laughs> I, I, I accept.
2: Oh, uh, man, what? Wow. Just lay it out for our listeners. What did the Secretary of State have to say today?
5: Yeah, what he said today was that um, there there is a requirement uh, under House Bill 316, which was passed in 2019 in Georgia, that the state do a risk limiting audit. And this is to make sure that the new voting system is counting the votes correctly. Um, and the Secretary of State has the power to choose which race it wants to audit. They don't audit every race, but he gets to choose and he chose the presidential race. Um, Now, because of this audit, normally in a normal circumstance with a race that's not as close as this one, as razor thin as this presidential race is, you wouldn't have to count all the ballots. You could go through a sample size and that would give you enough reliability to know that um, that, that the machine had counted correctly. But because this race is so close, 14,000 votes out of 5 million total cast, uh, they are going to have to go through and count every ballot by hand. Uh, as part of this audit. And so that's what's going to happen uh, starting very soon. And they still hope to have it done by next Friday, the 20th, which is when the state is scheduled to certify this election.
2: Any idea why the Secretary of State is just now mentioning this audit? Because he didn't mention it any other time before when asked about a recount. He did say that the Trump campaign would have to ask for a recount.
5: Uh, yes, it, and it kind of gets into the the specifics of the law in that the audit has to take place before the certification and they get to choose which race they want to audit. And again, normally uh, in, in a race that's not this close, it wouldn't require a complete hand recount. But because it is so close and because this audit was chosen, this audit was always out there to be chosen. Uh, they've been kind of cagey in the last couple of days on which race they were going to choose. And then today they announced that they would choose, in fact, the presidential race. Um, And so this is the way it's going to happen. One interesting thing is, is he says that even though, though they'll go through this hand count process as part of this audit of the presidential race, if it comes out still that it's still a margin for Joe Biden, once they certify President Trump could technically still ask for another recount, but that recount would go by the normal rules, which is a scanning recount and not another hand recount. But it could happen. We could have two recounts.
2: And he is saying that this has nothing to do with allegations from Senators Leffler and Purdue that he was not being transparent and running a fair elections process because there is that.
5: Yeah, he was asked directly about that. Uh, is the is the Secretary of State's office being pressured into doing this hand recount? He said, no, this is at an abundance of, of clarity that they wanted um, to do a hand recount and do the risk limiting audit for this specific race. They said, you know, we could have chosen other ones, but we wanted to choose, choose this one to demonstrate um, that the, the process has worked correctly. So we'll see how it turns out.
2: Now, Secretary Raffensperger also announced that he's moving the December first runoff to January fifth to coincide with the Senate runoffs. did he give a reason why? This is just the main reason. Just so everyone could just vote for everything on one it, day.
5: It it kind of has to do with um with not only that, but also with counties being able to prepare uh for those runoff elections. Um now this apparently does not affect the um the district five. Uh, runoff, which is a special election that that was held back in September, so the the December first runoff will stand for that District Five race, which is just in DeKalb, Fulton, and parts in Clayton County mm-hmm. as well. Any idea uh, why the he rest, decided to uh, like the Public leave. Service Commission?
2: I'm sorry, Emil, but any, if if he wants all of the the runoffs to be held on the same day, why what's so I mean, we what's special about the fifth? He just didn't want to do that one, or did he give an explanation? <laughs>
5: You know, it could it could very well be that this is this is going to be a short term thing anyway, because uh, Nikima Williams, as the as the winner of the regular race to to fill out the full term of um, a full next term, she's going to be taking office January 3rd anyway. Mm-hmm. So they don't want you know, obviously, you don't want a special election three days after uh, Nikema Williams takes office for this what's supposed to be an interim. So they're keeping up December so that somebody can fill that term in the meantime until Nakima Williams is sworn in on uh, in early January.
2: Emil, just for some clarity here, going back to the, the counting. What counties are still counting? <laughs> and then also when that happens, then when will we have the re- again, when will we have the recount, the hand recount?
5: So counties, uh, there are 97 counties as of this morning that have certified. That means they've handed in their final count, so 97. Still none of the major uh, counties outside of Gwinnett uh, have sent in their certifications, so we're expecting those tomorrow and Friday from from Fulton, DeKalb, and Cobb, Um, but they have a deadline that's still in place for Friday to have the certification of their original count, but they're going to start um, with the, the recount as well. And then that's supposed to happen um, statewide and supposed to be done by next Friday, the 20th, according to uh, Secretary Raffensperger.
2: Mm. WABE reporter Emil Moffitt, thank you so much for continuing to cover this important issue. We appreciate you taking the time and not only informing me, but our listeners, because so much is happening from day to day. Thank you, Emil.
5: It is. It's my pleasure, Rose.
2: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, today is Veterans Day, not typically honored with parades and events and other celebrations. But due to the pandemic, we know that many of those events are limited, if any, are taking place. In a moment, I'll speak with retired Army Captain Dan Bershynski. You may recall we first spoke with him last week for a conversation about why he volunteered to become a poll worker in Fulton County. But I'm also joined by Gina De La She's executive vice president for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. You'll find out why right now. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
6: Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you, Rose.
2: Retired Army Captain Dan Brzezinski, first of all, thank you for your service as a nation. the nation honors you and your fellow veterans. And if you don't mind, I do want to go back to a day, August 18th, 2009. Can you share with our listeners what happened on that day?
7: Yeah, I don't mind at all, Rose. Um, on August 18th, 2009, I was a 25-year-old first lieutenant on my first deployment to combat in Afghanistan. And I was in charge of about 35 soldiers in a U.S. Army infantry platoon. And we were uh, patrolling our assigned area of southern Afghanistan in Kandahar.
2: Hmm. There was an incident that happened. Um, do you mind? I want you to tell the story. I don't want to tell your story. Yeah. I want you to tell your sure, story. Sure. No, yeah. I don't mind at all. So. Yeah.
7: So, so during very long story, I could go into a lot of details, sure. but, but to cut to the chase uh, while leading my platoon, uh, we took contact a, a sister platoon about a kilometer away from us. Uh, walked into an ambush, one of their soldiers Sergeant Trolley Tom was killed instantly. Mm-hmm. I moved my platoon to reinforce him on the way there we ran into a, a an IED ambush a, a hidden bomb essentially a booby trap on the trail that we were running down and I lost my soldier uh Jonathan Yanny and he was close to me uh he was he was my forward observer he carried one of my radios and I was not uh, significantly wounded in that attack but he was real close um And we kind of picked ourselves out of the dust, literally, and uh, continued fighting for a few more hours that day, kind of consolidating positions. And later on that night, after things had slowed down a little bit, I was walking within my perimeter, coming back from a a leadership meeting. And I stepped on the hidden trigger of a third IED. And uh, this one, uh, luckily for me, was a little bit smaller. And instead of killing me outright, like our other two soldiers, it just uh, ripped my legs off above my knees instantly, shattered my left arm, broke my jaw, broke my eardrums, and a couple other superficial things. And that's the day that changed my life forever.
2: How much time, any surgeries, Captain, and how many years of physical therapy?
7: Yeah, so the, the general timeline is my soldiers saved my life there in the dirt. I was evacuated by an Air Force pararescue uh, team flown to the emergency room at Kandahar Air Base, where we had a, a big field hospital, um, essentially stayed in the ER and the ICU. From from what I was told, I was uh, more or less unconscious after about the first hour after injury, and I was, I was out of consciousness for the next seven days. Uh, but once I was stable enough to be evacuated from Afghanistan, I was flown via Landstuhl, Germany, all the way back to Walter Reed in Washington, DC. I woke up there in the ICU. Um, You know, I knew what had happened to me. I I had a rough understanding of the extent of the damage. And once I woke up and could check myself out, I I really understood. And from there, I started basically the next three and a half months of inpatient uh, surgeries. How many I had, I don't know, in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things, not that many, Mm -hmm. to be honest. I I know guys who, you know, had 20, 30 or more. I think I had around 10 or 12, maybe. Um, But three and a half months in the hospital, finished up my final surgery, and then began a journey of really the next... Four years, more or less, of doing outpatient physical rehabilitation. At the end of all the surgeries, what I was left with was a transfemoral amputation. So, mm-hmm. no ankle joint, no knee joint on my left side, and on my right side, what we call a hip disarticulation amputation. So, no ankle, no knee, and no hip joint. I have my hip socket, but I have no femur whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, pretty significant. Um, not much of my legs were left. Despite that, uh, the Army has some of the best physical therapists in the world, access to the best rehab, rehab technology in the world, and they gave me ample opportunity to walk around on the best legs that, that they could provide. Mm. And after about four years, I was up and walking uh, in a meaningful way, able to walk around the restaurant, walk around the office when I choose to. And that was kind of the, the end of phase one of my physical journey after injury.
2: Well, oh, thank you. We are so glad that you are with us. Gina, let me come to you. How often do you all hear stories like one of of Captain Bershinsky's?
6: You know, um all the time. Uh they are heroes and um we are, you know, privileged and honored to do the work we do with the foundation. Um but we unfortunately hear it very often. Um our Smart Home program was started in 2011. Um, the first quadruple amputee to ever survive war um, was, was Brendan Morocco. And he was from our hometown of Staten Island. And our team was down in Walter Reed visiting and they met Brendan and they told him, you know, we would... We want to build you a home mm-hmm. and that's how our smart home program was born and then we found out there were four other quadruple amputees and 37 other triple amputees and the list went on and on for double amputees and single amputees and that's how our foundation um started the program and you know and from there um it's just been an amazing journey where we're able to help all of these american heroes who fight for our country and our freedom and our families every single day and it's just amazing um the human beings that they are And um, we're so inspired by them every day. And Captain Brzezinski and all of them, it's just so inspiring for us to see the bravery and the strength. And um, yeah, so that's how our our smart home program came to be.
2: And and Captain Brzezinski, you you all are helping him with in a major big way. You want to tell us what that's all about?
6: Sure. So um, yesterday we um, presented uh, Captain Brzezinski with his mortgage-free smart home. So our foundation paid off his mortgage and specially adapted the home to make it more accessible for him. Uh, And we also did, so we did 11 uh, mortgage-free homes for Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. So that's across uh, all of our programs. We also have a Gold Star program, which provides homes to uh, families with young children of fallen soldiers, and also um, first responders who are killed in the line of duty and leave behind young children. Um, all of our um, families today have served. So all of our first responders were also veterans. Mm-hmm. And so 11 for eleven, eleven. And Captain Brzezinski, as I said, um, was presented with his home yesterday.
2: Captain Brzezinski, tell me about your, your, your new digs, man. How you like <laughs> it? And, and here's a big question for me. Do you have a pool table? Because if you do, <laughs> I'm there. Let's go.
7: No, I'm sorry, Rose, I don't have a pool table, but I do know of another wounded veteran in town who is uh, who will give you a run for your money at the pool table. Um, <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so uh, what Tunnel to Towers did for me is is really remarkable. What they typically do is they uh, get in touch with a veteran that they want to award a house to, they find the land, they purchase mm-hmm. the land and they build the home to the, to the specific needs of that veteran, in my case, I grew up in the Atlanta area. I grew up in Peachtree city. I moved back here um, about four years ago and I bought a house in Atlanta. And so when I got in touch with tunnel and towers, I said, Hey, I don't know if, if you guys are prepared for this, but I already own a home and it's, it's pretty good, but it's far from perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could use some help with it and they were phenomenal. So what they did for me was they made my, my home perfectly wheelchair accessible. Um, it, it, it doesn't take anything fancy. There's nothing super whiz bang. It's just common sense things like, you know, leveling out the floors of an old, you know, 1947 house, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, widening doorways, you know, moving a load bearing wall here, or there, um, remodeling the front porch and the back deck and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what it does for me is it, it just simplifies my life so much because I live a wonderful life, but having lost both my legs, I'm, I'm pretty much a full-time wheelchair user And what most able-bodied people, you know, are never forced to understand is that the world is very different when your mobility is limited, particularly Mm -hmm. when you're using a wheelchair. And so by doing the modifications that they did, it it allows me to relax when I'm at home, which I think is a place where everyone should be able to relax. Um, So it's been a huge benefit to me and I really appreciate it. Gina,
2: I imagine you all have more requests than you can feel the need.
6: Unfortunately, Rose, Yes. Yes. And we do, you know, we do the best we can, and we uh, work through our waiting list. I am um, proud to say, by the end of this year, the foundation will, will have provided 250 mortgage-free homes across all of our programs. Mm. And uh, we're entering the 20th anniversary of 9/11 and the founding of our foundation for next year. So, you know, we're planning 100 homes for next year.
2: You think? You think you all can meet that?
6: Yes. Luckily, we have wonderful supporters and partners, and uh, we are excited and we we are happy to say that we will be able to do 100 homes next year.
2: As we wrap up, and Gina, I'll stay with you. I'll start with you. When you think about Veterans Day and, and, you know, what we all say and do to honor our veterans, uh, what do you want folks to know about just how much help is needed? for our veterans whether it's what you all did for captain Brzezinski, whether it's reentering the civilian life mental health what have you what do you want folks to know if maybe they don't understand about what resources are needed for our veterans
6: sure it's I, I we just feel it's so important to give back to those who gave everything for us and as captain Brzezinski said these homes are providing them you know it's giving back some independence it's providing them with things that we all take for granted We don't have to struggle every day. We don't think of certain things. And the smart homes, wider wider doorways, wider hallways, everything works off of smart technology, um, counter, the stove moves up and down, automatic bathrooms, um, sinks. Uh, security systems. I mean, we try to really make it as accessible as possible for them. You could um, manage your lights and your um, blinds with um, an iPad, your iPhone. So we try to make it as easy as possible and things that, like I said, we all take for granted. But there is such a need out there um, for our injured veterans as well as our Gold Star and full first responder families. And our foundation is completely committed to helping these heroes. And, you know, we, we could use all the support and help we could get to continue our mission. And, you know, we live by the principle, while we have time, let us do good. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Siller family and the Tunnel to Towers Foundation always strives to do every day. We strive to do good. And we just ask who, who, who everyone to join us because we feel like they more than deserve it. And like I said, we just want to give back to the heroes who've done everything for all of us.
2: Captain Bershynski, you told me last week the reason why you wanted to volunteer to become a poll worker, you wanted to do as much as you could to ensure that everyone that had the right to vote, that they should be able to do that. What was that experience like for you?
7: Yeah, thanks, Rose. Um, you know, the greatest honor I think I'll probably ever have in life was was leading American soldiers in combat, that sense of responsibility and service to the nation Uh, is incredibly unique, Uh, but there are are so many ways to serve in this nation and around the world. Um, And, you know, on Veterans Day, I I genuinely appreciate um, all the thanks and support that veterans are given. But I think one of the really unique things about veterans as a population is that by definition, you know, before we got thanked, we were offering to serve. And so the thanks are appreciated. Um, But we're the kind of population that wants to get out there and wants to help. So I wanted to be a poll worker because, you know, I'm still alive and my service to this nation is not over. Um, It was one small way that I could help out. And the Tunnel to Towers Foundation is helping me out right now, taking a, a financial burden off of my shoulders and what I hope it will allow me to do is continue to find ways that i can give back to this nation so you know the beautiful thing about about giving and helping your neighbors and helping our fellow citizens is that it's it's circular you help someone you give them a a leg up maybe and then they help someone else and what tunnel the towers does is just incredible so um, they're helping a lot of good deserving american veterans and i fully expect all of those american veterans to return the favor and i will make the country a better place to be for all of us.
2: Retired Army Captain Dan Bershinski. I was also joined by Gina De La Regione, who's the Executive Vice President for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Thank you both so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Captain, again, thank you for your service. Gina, thank you for what you're doing for our veterans. I really appreciate it.
6: Thank you so much for having us, Rose. Like I said, I am honored every day to do the work we do. And Captain brishinsky welcome to your home, and thank you for your service. And I'd like to thank all of the veterans for their service.
2: All right. Now, coming up in just a moment, we're going to continue this conversation, talking about our nation and our current nation's current state of democracy. Give me a call. Tell me what you do, what you think. Tell me how you're feeling. I know you all have a lot to say because you email me, but the number is four zero four eight seven zero. And I'll also be joined by Morehouse College Professor Ilya Davis. That's 404-870-0135. Call us. We're back in a moment.
7: live in Roswell.
4: It was a
8: hard
7: fought war but well I guess it's just a battle. I have been doing phone making, text making, I wrote letters to voters. I have done so much. (laughs) It's just really exciting
9: to love one today.
7: Christian in Atlanta, Midtown. You've got people spout conspiracy theories left and right. You've got people who believe in democracy. It's just a lot.
3: I'm Geeta Chakravarti. I'm visiting from New Jersey. There's a lot that we need to heal in this country. I've been in this country for a long time. I'm an immigrant with grown-up children in this country. The election just spoke out loud as to how divided we are. This was not a sweeping win for any one candidate. It is still a split country with so much division, so much hatred. I don't wanna use the word hatred, but there is that animosity, there is that divide. And the current president elect Biden and vice president elect Kamala Harris have a lot on their plate too.
2: Voices from the community. As Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You heard the word democracy used. Well, that's at the core of my question to you, the listener, today. How are you feeling at this moment about our nation's democracy? We're taking your calls, 404 870 0135. Again, Four zero four eight seven zero zero one three five, And joining me to kickstart this conversation from Morehouse College, Professor Ilya Davis, Professor of Philosophy and a whole lot of other stuff. But I didn't have enough time to put all your titles in here. Professor, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here.
2: Let's talk about democracy for a moment as we kickstart this conversation. I'm going to talk to Lorraine in just a moment because her father was a veteran. Um, your thoughts on this day, when you connect Veterans Day, democracy and what we're currently going through in our nation? How you put all this together, Professor.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Great responsibility. Yeah. In short, short, I thank individuals who decided um, without any coercion to dedicate themselves to a concept that oftentimes is unclear and ambiguous. And that's what we were talking about, democracy. But I believe individuals ascribe a value to it that motivates them and pushes them forward. And uh, if I were to, and I hate doing this, reduce it, it is an implication of a certain profound freedom, liberties Mm -hmm. and fairness. And so I believe that motivates people to do things as we are representing today in their dedication to these ideals in their service in the military. And so I also think this is also extended to the general population as well, that fundamentally people don't need theoretical notions of democracy because they have an everyday understanding that it represents my ability to live without coercion um, and I have a certain level of truthfulness to inform my decision-making and I'm protected by the representative government. Mm-hmm. So you have a Republican notion with a small r, small D democracy. And I think that people are invested in those basic notions without being overly theoretical.
2: Hmm. The calls are coming in 4048700135. I know we don't normally take calls, but we're doing it today. Again, 4048700135. And the question is pretty simple. How are you feeling about our current state of democracy? Professor, you the students love you, they tell me. Now I haven't looked up your rate my professor grading yet, but uh, what are you, what conversations are you having with your students? We talk about the current state of our our nation's democracy. What are they saying?
1: Well, the beautiful thing about our students is that they're highly intelligent, brilliant young men at Morehouse College, and I love the diversity. So I know that people have a tendency to think that everybody there is a pinko liberal Democrat, but that's not true. We have young Republicans. We have, I guess, people teetering on being libertarians, ironically. But nonetheless, I think that they are concerned about the fundamental tenets of of the electoral politics. Mm -hmm. And they're very confused because as I said earlier, the assumption is that you can trust the system Mm -hmm. as it functions. And we can talk about other sort of problems with the system, but fundamentally they believe that it should work minimally. You collect votes, you count votes, and you provide a winner. And so now they're very confused. I mean, we're talking at 16 year olds up to probably 22 year olds in our first year class. They're very confused. Some of them become a little dismayed. And we have extreme criticisms of the system and whether or not people on both sides, sadly, they're, we caught in a false dichotomy between Democrats and Republicans, but on both sides, whether or not these individuals will allow their actions to mimic their words. And the words include the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It includes every amendment to the Constitution. And they don't find that to be consistent. So the lack of consistency and the inability to to use terms like right, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't appear to be a criterion of correctness in how one employs the term. So the issue is, is this right or wrong? That seems to have been vacated. We don't know what that means anymore. Sadly, we did have some clear understandings. You know, such and such is right. This activity is wrong. They they don't get that anymore. And I think Mm. it's tearing away at the last modicum of investment in a country that they many of them have never felt advocated for their rights in the first place.
2: Mm. Hang with me, Professor. Let's go to Lorraine, who's been holding with us from the beginning. Lorraine, thanks so much for calling Closer Look. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Your father was a veteran.
8: Yes, I wanted to say that my story is a combination of my opinion of democracy at age 79 and my father as a veteran. Uh, He was a lieutenant in the Signal Corps and um, was in every field of battle except the um, Asian one, I guess, with Japan, because Mm -hmm. he had to come home when his father was dying. But he had photographs that were made to document uh, when the Americans came into the concentration camps. They took photos to share with the Allies and uh, all the people of the world to let them know what had happened there. And he brought a copy of those home with him. I think he just felt they needed, he needed to have them to let people know himself. And somewhere between age four and nine, I saw those photographs. And they just broke my heart. And even at that age, I said to myself, how can a country of good people let such a person take control of the country? Uh, A person who was... a you know, egomaniac with hatred and um, power mad. You know, how could they? How could they let a person do that? Did you and, ask your dad about that, Lorraine? Did you ask your dad about um, that? No, I didn't, because he didn't have an answer either. And like many veterans, um, he usually didn't talk about his stories unless you would had a few drinks, you
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally understandable. But, yeah. yeah. Uh,
8: but he had some... He, I just could talk for hours about the things that he did share.
2: So that but, for you, that for you was sort of the beginning of trying to understand the importance of democracy and what it could right. what it should well, be. Yeah.
8: What I wanted to say was, in regards to democracy, um, I just, all my life, I couldn't understand how Could you let someone get in from a a basically democratic society that Germany was, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then Trump got in. And at this age of my life, I realized how easily we can lose our democracy, how we can believe lies. Um, I think it was Hitler who uh, was maybe one of the original uh, speakers of the statement, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, everyone will begin to believe it. Mm -hmm. And um, we can lose it so easily. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to fight back, and I say, don't let go of that democracy for all the people who, who gave their lives for it and their service and all of us who need to have it. All
2: right. You know. Thank you so much, Lorraine. I appreciate that. Professor, before I go to uh, to Hajar, you know, Lorraine is saying that, you know, for some people, based on who's been elected, you know, they don't see that as democracy because of how someone governs. In this case, we're talking about the commander-in-chief. You don't have to comment on that, but just, you know, if you want to, you can. Or I can go to Hajar. Well, maybe
1: we yeah, we'll combine it with the next response.
2: Hajar, uh, thanks for calling Closer Look. I appreciate it. And I hope we got your name correct.
1: You did. It was greetings.
0: Uh, I was really surprised I made it through the line, so I appreciate the time. Um, I appreciate the question, especially in this climate now. Um, and I appreciate this dialogue in general. So what I wanted to say in terms of democracy, I think it's important that we first acknowledge what government we truly have in America right now uh, based on what I've learned. In my education, this is a democratic republic, right? So that's the reason we have these electors. I feel like if we were truly in a democracy, there wouldn't be a barrier between the people and the candidate, right? So, for instance, I think in the last three elections, uh, the democratic candidate actually won the popular vote. So based on any other voting system outside of our American democratic republic, the popular vote would win, right? So I think, you know, that facet needs to be pointed out more because I think we tout democracy a little too much. Now, I will say, more than any other country, America definitely affords anybody who's willing to work hard and work smart the opportunity to attain wealth and build a business and, and have, quote-unquote, the American dream. Obviously, there's a ton of barriers in between that, such as race, religion, creed, sexuality, etc. Mm-hmm. Um So... So with regards to the climate now, uh, like I was telling, uh, I guess, your assistant or the lady who screamed to me before I made it into this call.
9: With this particular
0: election, I was really hoping that I see more people skew towards a third party. Hmm. I feel like a lot of people. I'm sorry. Did you say something? No, I'm just
2: I'm just it's just natural emotions. Hmm, oh, OK,
0: <laughs> so, you know, um i'll be honest i'm pretty independent um okay i know the media is gonna skew to either side of the democrats or the republicans but it's important that people understand this in some states there are probably as many as 10 candidates on the ballot so the fact that in one state in a, a truly united states that you can have 10 candidates and then in the state of georgia where i reside uh we only have uh two candidates do
2: you want more third party two.
0: options Absolutely, because I think it's imperative because once you have two parties that really dominate the script for any election, I think that's a concentration of power that we we haven't seemed to ease our ways out of at all, despite the quality of the candidate, right? So I think with the previous caller, she was speaking to how could a democracy allow a man with the hatred level or ignorance level of Trump get in. Well, I would say that's his media persona, honestly, right? And I'm not a Trump supporter or a defender. But I think, you know, a lot of what he did was out of true politics and activating his his base, which was, uh, I would say, people with some sort of uh, super conservative, almost, I don't want to say this about everybody, but almost a white supremacist view. Even if you look at uh, Middle America, places like West Virginia, where you have a disproportionate amount of poor whites um, on welfare, yet they'll vote for somebody like Trump, who's clearly against additional wel- welfare um, benefits. Right. So well, I, let me talk about
2: ramble, yeah, yeah yeah let me let me let me talk about this with our professor uh, for a moment. Okay. okay, can you do that for me? Because I want to make yeah, sure absolutely. I get everybody in. Thank you so much. Okay, so Professor, you know Hajari says, look, first of all, like more third party options. And then, did you what did you make of his assessment of what when he was a candidate? Donald Trump and now president what he was able to do to to win the white house what do you make of that
1: I mean this has been a long discussion about the very parochial nature of our political structure and it seems to be counter or yes counter to a democratic notion and that is we've impacted the term democracy in ways that it doesn't do service to all of the varying opinions and options mm-hmm. so democracy becomes a catch-all. And I think once it does that, it almost loses any virility and definition. And so what happens is people find themselves on the margins because if you don't find anything within that concept of democracy to represent your ideas, represented again through those two parties, you are feel a little bewildered. And that's what happens. So the US trying to imitate structures of Great Britain, for example, They have eight to nine parties, Mm -hmm. eight functional parties. Again, it's about allowing democracy to be revised in light of its parochialisms, in light of its failures. That's part of the democratic notion that we embrace difference and diversity and failures and we recalibrate in light of them. We have not recalibrated. There are two parties. And I think that undermines the integrity of people's beliefs and how they would like for their votes to be registered. 404-870-0135.
2: Four zero four eight seven zero zero one three five again. Four zero four eight seven zero zero one three five. And we're asking you, what do you think about the current state of our nation's democracy? Uh, let's go to Regan or Reagan, uh, who's also an immigrant and a, a veteran. Thanks so much for calling. Closer Look.
10: Hey, thank you, Ross. How are you?
2: I'm fine. How you doing?
10: I'm doing great. And uh, thank you to your guest today.
2: Mm-hmm.
10: He's uh, bringing forth some very important. Parts.
2: Well, that's why we wanted him on the show.
10: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> what do you got for me? What do you think of a? What do you think of the current state of our nation's democracy?
10: Well, as an immigrant and as a veteran, somebody who has lived in a democracy that doesn't work and a democracy that works, I believe that uh, the American democracy is stronger than it has ever been. I mean, we have an election where we have an incumbent who potentially, I mean, we want to say lost a very free, fair election that was open to scrutiny and investigation. Mm-hmm. In other countries, when an incumbent finds themselves in this situation, probably we will have the military on the street, innocent people will be dying, and they would have probably sworn themselves in already as the leader. Okay. But in America, we do have systems where people's voices are heard. This election was very, very close. And by no means, no side should think they won or no side should think they lost. I mean, it brought forth the division that lies within America. Mm -hmm. But again, democracy dictates that sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. And Mm -hmm. in a close election like this, where everybody saw what happened, and the media was there when the vote was being counted, and the parties sent their representatives, I believe that our democracy can't be any stronger. And those of us who have been in countries where elections really don't reflect the will of the people, Mm -hmm. I believe it doesn't get any better than this. All
2: right. Thank you so much, and thank you for your service. Wow. You know, he says, look, it could be worse, you know, because in some other nations where, and you and I both know Professor, you know, um, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Derek, um, thank you so much for taking the time to call. Derek, you with me? Yeah, I,
10: I feel so nervous. I feel like I'm talking to Connie Tone, Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> and Robin Roberts at the same time. Oh, just,
2: uh, wow, what a combination. Connie, yeah. Oprah, and Robin. All thank right. you so much for
10: what you do for our state. Uh, I wish you was a great baby, but I'll officially make you a great baby. But my point, my, my question is to to the uh, Pope, Morehouse professor, is, as an ordinary African American citizen on the bottom of the talking pole, what should we do and how should we feel about this situation in the White House? About this young man that don't want to leave the White House and refuse to, and start controversy for everybody in America. Your comments, I, I leave you on that. I love you, peaches. Thank you so much.
2: All right, thank you, well, professor. Question
1: uh, to you, outside brother. Outside of outside of platitudes, you know home, hold fast to dreams, um, keep the faith, baby. I mean, I hate to do that, but what we're dealing with here is we're going to have to maintain a certain fidelity to these ideals, even when those who claim to represent us don't. And it's very difficult. So I have to tell students, let's start with our local politics. Let's make sure that we engage and, and enforce those types of freedoms and liberties for individuals in front of us. And the difficulty is how does representative government function? Well, part of the problem is we live in an educational system that does not fortify this understanding through its pedagogical methods, the way they teach and what they teach. Mm-hmm. And so we lose a certain focus. And I hate to say this, but we overemphasize what we want to do in science and give no account of the human heart. And so what we assume is that we will be good people through serendipity, but we will be science scientists through training. And I'm not saying training people in moral reflection, but we must make a concerted and purposeful effort to teach and inform people about what does it mean to be a human being and how is that represented in our electoral politics in our daily engagements, our social arrangements. This can't be taken for granted. And so what happens is people become so dismayed by what transpires because we have not afforded them the opportunity of how you think through contradictions. Again, we're not talking about overcoming them, we're we're taking to task the idea of learning how to move through trauma. How do you move through trials and tribulation? We don't teach it, it must be taught. And so now Mm. we we have an entire populace now that is saying, what do I go, what do I do? Because we didn't focus on it. This is literature, this is the study of religion, this is the study of philosophy, sociology, psychology, along with the other disciplines. So we can't become so myopic in how we want to approach the future, it has to be open. The voice you hear from Morehouse College,
2: Professor Ilya Davis. And also we're taking your calls because I have this question for you. How are you feeling at this moment about our nation's democracy? Our number 404 870 Again, 404 870 Let's go to Mark. Mark, thank you so much for calling Closer Look. How are you feeling about uh, our nation's democracy?
4: Well, specifically about that, I, I felt great after the election when uh, when Biden was the winner. I feel terrible about it right now as, as Trump tries to steal a, a valid legal election. So, um, so not so good right now. But I, if it's OK with you, I'd like to respond to the caller who, who wants more third party candidates in Georgia.
2: Sure. If you can, can you do it quickly? Because I got a lot of folks I want to get everybody on, but. Yep.
4: I'll be quick. Um, I don't think it's viable in Georgia, where, given our runoff system, uh, it just it it's just throwing a vote away. I think in a place like Maine, where they have ranked choice voting, it would be, it, it is more viable to have third party candidates and more candidates because uh, they're all more viable. But in Georgia, hmm. with the runoff system, which to my my understanding is that was instituted in the '60s as a as a racist move to to further disenfranchise the vote from from African Americans, it just doesn't work. Hmm. Um, I think one of the best things I saw on Facebook was the, the meme, if that's the right word, about voting is like uh, taking the bus. You want to take a bus that gets you to your destination, but if that bus isn't there, you get the one that's going to get you closest. And a uh, third party candidates not going to get as close. It's not going to get anyone closest to their destination. It's going to be a Republican or a Democrat.
2: Hmm.
4: You know, in my eyes, it's a Democrat.
2: So you don't think that could ever change, Mark?
4: Not with a runoff system because you're just you're just throwing a vote away. You're you're either you're either den- denying uh, a candidate a vote or you're or you're throwing to another candidate. I mean, look at the the this joy someone who took sixty thousand votes in the uh, in the the most recent election, and those sixty thousand votes would have been better served somewhere else. Mm. Um, I just don't think it works in a runoff system. It works with ranked choice voting, which I, I would love to yeah, have a show about that where Yeah, we we touched on that a little bit
2: earlier this week, but maybe you're right. Maybe we'll have a, a longer segment about that. Mark, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Before I go to Ken, Professor, what do you think about what Mark says as of right now? Be
1: you know, I mean it has there- worked. I mean, this is part of what happened with the Tea Party. And people were amazed. I think at least two candidates won when they ran for national for federal office it can happen but we have to avoid being self-refuting as well if at every point we consider a third party and the response is it won't work now well then there will never happen right so we have to be a little more proactive and constructive and and experimental we're going to have to maybe start at the local level start in the city council start mm-hmm. but we have to start we can't keep putting this off. We put this off for too long. Every time somebody wants to start a third party or run, say for instance, in the Green Party on the liberal side Mm -hmm. and the Tea Party on the conservative side, well, they've already demonstrated it's possible. So we, we have to extrapolate from what was possible and ask ourselves, how do we generate that level of interest across the board? How do we move forward? Of course, we don't want to waste a vote, but that's also problematic too, because isn't the fundamental notion of a democracy to vote my interest? So I never look at a vote to be wasted, even when we don't win. You understand? Mm-hmm. Because the problem is that's what people begin to believe. If I don't win, it's wasted. No, it's not wasted because you have been true to your principles and your fundamental beliefs about the political structures such that you voted your interest.
2: All right. Let's go to Ken, who's been waiting so patiently. And I appreciate it. Ken, thank you for taking the time.
9: Hey, how are you doing? Doing good. I just wanted to say uh, yeah I do think that uh there's some moral confusion and a moral divide and uh moral cherry picking focus on um and and willful blindness about um, you know some moral issues but I I would I would like to say on on that note that um you know you can compare Donald Trump to a lot of people but he's not a mass murderer. He was against abortion, and that's why I voted for him, because he was against abortion, which was so graphically described in the State of the Union, where they had a, a woman describing a, sure. a, a, a child in the womb withdrawing from the instruments of death, uh, you know, rec- uh, pulling away as they were about to kill it. And he also has supported uh, Jews, not, <laughs> not tried to annihilate them. He, he's put the embassy, the American embassy, um, or at least he tried to put the American embassy in, in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he's completely succeeded. Well, he certainly supported uh, Jews and, and Christians and unborn children, so I don't think that he uh, should be compared to to Hitler. Okay.
2: Well, let me ask you this, Ken, uh, real quickly. So, you, how are you feeling about our nation's democracy right now, the current state of our nation's democracy?
9: Well, um, I I think that uh, you know I'd like I I think that a lot of it has to do with uh, what God we believe in, and uh, and a lot of us believe in one God and a lot of us believe in another God. Some people believe in the God of money, some people believe in the God of I want to do whatever I want to do, and some people believe in the God of the Bible.
2: Hmm. All right, Ken, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Wow, let's go to Francisco, who's been holding as well. Francisco, thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, as a immigrant and also veteran, like the prior person said, uh, I think democracy in the U.S. is best than pretty much everywhere else. Hmm. But one of the issues that we face in the polarization is due to this single-issue voting that we just heard now, where the parties embrace the single-issue voting and therefore take away from the people the option to choose multiple issues in a candidate so i cannot get somebody that is uh in favor of health care for all but is also pro-choice right because the parties will not accept such person and i wonder uh what's the opinion here about how to solve that
9: Hmm.
2: thank you so much Uh, professor real quickly i do have some some other calls what do you make of what he said
1: I agree to the degree to which we're going to have to make a concerted effort to inform people. We, our constituency in the U.S. is very underdeveloped about politics. So even when I hear people say we're better than others, that's a problem because we also have more opportunity. So commensurate to our opportunity, we have a horrible democracy, right? So we don't. We're not talking about countries that are fledgling democracies. We're talking about very well developed scripted democracies that are failing in the U.S. Mm. Right? That, that it chips away at every point. All right, Demi.
2: Thank you so much for calling
1: Closer Look. What do you think?
3: I am gravely concerned about the state of democracy because I have seen a systematic, in what I consider a systematic, uh, teaching us to distrust the media, teaching us to distrust the courts, the, uh, uh, our voting process, teaching us to distrust our public health officials, it is a systematic undermining of what I consider the pillars of democracy. When you attack and get the public to believe that all media is bad, that, that the voting process is contaminated, those are the pillars of democracy. And, it, and the other thing is that we have become a single-issue voting, and democracy is not a single issue. I blame it on, I will say, the hate radio that started. And for years, every day, their goal is to get us to hate something different. Mm. And it has been a systematic approach. I'm very concerned. And the last thing that I would say is that we have a Senate race coming up. It is critical for people. You talked about our local politics. It's critical for people to get out there and vote. Nothing will be accomplished that the new president wants to put in if we do not control the Senate, and we have seen this before, because everything that was blocked was blocked uh, from day one uh, in a uh, by uh, I hate to say it, but the Republicans who actually hmm. met with 12 people the day that Obama was elected on his inauguration day, hmm. and they held a forum to go back and say. And you can document it, block everything he says. So anyhow, thank you. Thank you for what you do for us. And I'm sorry I talked so long.
2: It's okay. Everybody did. That's the whole point of this. And I tell you what, folks, you know, Doug and A. Williams and Patrick, you know what? I'm going to make a plea to the powers that be. We'll continue this conversation tomorrow. I promise that. We will continue that conversation. Professor Ilya Davis from Morehouse, a true Morehouse man. Thank you so much for taking the time. You so if much, you want you to come ask. back tomorrow, you can and join us. We appreciate it. You've been listening to Closer Look Thank here on you. Thank. You've been listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We'll continue the conversation tomorrow. I promise.